Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, conservation voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I speak with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman about his day-to-day duties, his political career path, and the challenges and opportunities of being a member of the Progressive Party. With nearly a quarter century of experience in Montpelier, he also reflects on incremental change, the pace of lawmaking, and what may be next for him. This week, with legislators putting in some really long days on their respective chamber floors, we're taking a break from our deep dive segment, but Lauren Hurl and I unpack all the latest action for the session shakedown segment. But first, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters. Find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting vermontconservationvoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback? Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Following now, two of our policy priority votes in the House and four in the Senate. It is a great time to check up on our scorecard and see just how your elected officials are voting. You can check that out over on our website. Now I'm joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters for our session shakedown segment, where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. There were some really big votes this week uh, for our priority policies. Let's start with the modernized bottle bill, H-158, which passed with support from all three parties and House independents on a vote of 115 to 29. It wasn't a surprise to me that it passed necessarily because this is something that's been worked on for over a decade. Uh, We've even posted on our social media accounts a picture of you, Lauren, when you were working on this back in your VPIRG days. Is this the most support we've seen uh, for this bill to date? Yeah, the vote count was really, I was was a little surprised how good it was. Um, I think it's just a testament to how much work has gone into this for so many years. And this version of the bill really addresses some longstanding challenges with how do we make this whole redemption system work better. Uh, I think in a way that is better than previous versions of the bill. So I think that really strong vote reflects that all that hard work that's gone into it. Awesome. Over in the Senate, S32, the ranked choice voting bill passed on a vote of 23 to 7 with which is really strong. Um, The bill will allow ranked choice voting for presidential primaries starting in 2028 and also form a summer study to evaluate its usage in statewide elections, perhaps as soon as 2026. And it also would allow municipalities to adopt ranked choice voting without going through the legislature for a charter change. Uh, And then there was S-100, the housing bill. Uh, There have been many amendments, but it passed to third reading on Thursday by a unanimous 30 to zero vote. And then on Friday, more amendments were proposed and the bill ultimately passed 27 to two with only Senator Ingalls of Essex and Senator Renner of Chittenden North opposing the bill. What will this bill do for Vermonters if enacted? And did any of these amendments wildly change the bill? Yeah, this bill 
uh, to to us, a lot of the really meaningful parts of the bill are allowing development and ensuring that in our community centers and our downtowns and villages uh, that we are allowing denser development. Um, so you can put a duplex in, you don't have some of the things like extensive parking requirements and things that have really served to stifle development in these smart growth locations. So there's a whole bunch of provisions in the bill. Um, It's quite extensive, um, but a lot of really good smart growth work. And a lot of the most maybe vigorous debate has been around some of the Act 250 provisions. And there are some um, pieces in the bill, but that was part of what some of the amendments offered um, on Friday related to, which were tied to, um, you know, further exempting more areas uh, from certain Act 250 requirements. And where they landed uh, was really making sure that those issues were going to be part of some of these ongoing studies that are happening right now that are uh, the legislature set up last year to really look at a lot of these issues with the plan of coming back in 2024, this coming year, uh, to really take a deeper dive into Act 250 modernization. Um, So, you know, the pieces of housing that intersect with Act 250, I think that's going to be really taken up in a meaningful way next year. And this year, the bill S-100 does a lot more on looking at local zoning and local regulations that have been, that are going to help, I think, spur additional housing development. And on the docket currently in the Senate is S-25, a bill that would regulate cosmetics, personal care products, and athletic turf from containing PFAS. We're finally expecting to see some action there this coming week, right? Yes. The calendar, there have been so many votes scheduled that they keep not getting to it. Um, But we're finally anticipating a floor vote on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week um, on the PFAS bill and are hoping for a really strong vote. So we'll see. Yeah. And also worth noting, the Senate voted 22 to 8 to take steps toward divesting state pension fund investments in the fossil fuel industry. And the House is working through the transportation bill and the budget. And of course, uh, when they are not on the floor, the House Environment and Energy Committee continues their work on S5, the Affordable Heat Act. Anything major to report there or anything that I'm missing? No, I think that covers, uh, as you can tell, there's been a lot going on. Um, I guess just noting that again, as we said last week, the um, H-126, the biodiversity uh, bill, the setting a target of 30% conservation by 2030, that had already passed through the House. Um, so we're hoping that gets taken up by the Senate soon as well. Um, and affordable heat in the House Environment and Energy Committee, just they've been working hard. They're just slogging through testimony on it and hearing from all sides of that issue and just really working through the details of that bill. Um, so I think it's just a, a stay tuned. They're just in the in the thick of it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a hectic time of year in the state house, and uh, with so much action happening and massive amounts of time and energy, uh, please be sure to thank your lawmakers for their work on all of these important issues that impact Vermonters. Now, let's move to my conversation with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman is currently serving as our state's 84th Lieutenant Governor, returning for a third term after one biennium break following a run for governor. 
Zuckerman is a progressive who was the only third party candidate to be elected in a statewide race this past election day nationwide. He served in the Vermont House from 1997 to 2011, and then in the state Senate representing representing Chittenden County from 2013 to 2017 until being elected as lieutenant governor. By the end of 2016, Zuckerman held an environmental score of 91 from our organization, which, according to my sleuthing, only seems to be due to some absences, which we count as a negative. He received the 2013 Legislative Champion Distinction from the Renewable Energy Vermont and 2014 Legislator of the Year by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility. He is the only member of a third party to serve as chair of a committee in the Vermont State House, which he did for two terms on the House Agriculture Committee. He resides in Hinesburg and runs Full Moon Farm with his partner. With nearly three decades of dedication and public service to Vermont, please welcome to the podcast, Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. Well, thank you, uh, Justin. I appreciate it. And I sometimes forget exactly all those things because it's been a while, but uh, I appreciate the rundown. Uh, So you went to college at UVM in the 90s, and you were still enrolled in school when you first ran for Vermont House. What inspired that choice, and what was that experience like back then? Well, there's a couple factors. Uh, One was that I had um, studied at UVM. I was studying at UVM, uh, and I had taken a year off. And when I came back, uh, during that year off, I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And when I came back, I had switched from being a chemistry major to an environmental studies major. And in that spring of 92, uh, I saw someone who now is incredibly famous all across the country, but I had not known uh, being a Massachusetts person coming to Vermont to go to school. And his name is Bernie Sanders. Uh, He was then uh, running for Congress. Um, I got involved in his campaign. I door knocked dorm doors and community doors and really got to know a number of people involved in in his orbit from environmental folks doing work on the ground in Burlington, uh, civil rights folks, uh, particularly around economic injustice brought on by history and as well as our our system as a whole. And he just inspired me to engage in politics more than just activism, uh, which is what I had been doing on the UVM campus. And uh, I worked on a couple other campaigns of people that I had met during that 92 campaign Uh, locally, and then uh, was asked to run in 94 uh, by then a serving state representative by the name of Dean Corrin for the district that included UVM uh, while I was still there. And um, I really had to think about it. I was engaging in farming on uh, for other people. I was studying, um, but I was also deeply frustrated then about environmental issues, including the climate and uh, felt that it was a district I could potentially win in, being predominantly student um, populated. And I did not succeed. I lost by 59 votes. Uh, I was trying to defeat an incumbent um, who was also a relatively uh, active, small P progressive, very liberal Democrat. So in hindsight, uh, you know, learning about um, spontaneity as a young person to get involved without really knowing the lay of the land, maybe that was or wasn't the best idea, but it was a very close race. Uh, and I ran again, fortunately, in 96 and, and was successful at that point. Yeah. So, and one thing that I really admired when I took 
a look back and explored your history and your accolades is your perseverance. Um, and I didn't know that you lost your first election. Um, I certainly applaud a candidate that can turn around after a defeat on election night and start writing their next chapter. Um, and you've, you've done that a few times in your career. Um, but when you ran and you, like you said, in 96 and, and won, um, you became the fourth progressive party member to serve in the state house. Um, and the progressives now currently make up six members of, of the whole legislature. Um, what is your experience as it relates to, to your party back in the nineties? And why did you choose to run as a capital P progressive? Sure. Well, interestingly enough, for more history, uh, at the time when I was first running, there was no progressive party. There was a, a minor party group called the Progressive Coalition. And really, uh, in some ways, that name encapsulates why I chose to run uh, in the Progressive Coalition, which is that it was really made up um, of a number of folks that were very active in their, in their professional and private lives around a wide range of really critical issues that still, unfortunately, have not uh, fully been resolved. Uh, some included strong environmentalists. Some were folks really working on economic injustice issues from wealth accumulation through house ownership to also issues around tenants' rights and renters' rights and really looking at housing as a human right, not just as a, uh, as a product to own that then is um, to be used as a profit-making motive as, as rental properties. And full disclosure, I now have two rental properties. Uh, one was my initial duplex that I bought coming out of college uh, with the good fortune of having a little, some support from my mom with a down payment of literally $12,000. There's no house you can buy with that size down payment today. Um, and it was a duplex. And I, um, she also co-signed the loan, even though I was then able to pay the loan uh, with my small income and, and the rental income from my housemates. But without that privilege, um, I would not have been able to get started down this path. And so the coalition, back to the party politics, was people who were really interested in perpetually affordable housing with better um, opportunity for folks without a wealth background to have an opportunity to succeed in society, climate and environment, social injustices from drug policy to uh, issues around racial injustice in our policing um, and various social injustices, whether it was marriage inequality and other aspects of our society that still were at that time discriminatory, at least on the laws. Uh, we've resolved some of those over time. So joining with that group who felt like issues was more important than sometimes the um, larger parties uh, umbrella, sometimes a little bit more top-down policy, uh, as well as a party that was not interested in any corporate support and that politics really ought to be grassroots from the bottom up, whether it be both campaign finance as well as issues-based, uh, made me choose going in that direction. And there's pros and cons to, have done in, to having done so. Uh, one, of the, one of the pros is that when you run and succeed under a third-party label or as a really clear independent where you stand on issues, once you're in office, you're never looking over your shoulder to say, I don't know if my voters really thought I'd push this hard or push this far. Because obviously running under a third party label, you already have pushed pretty far and put yourself out there. So your constituents really know where you are. Um, I have a lot of friends in the Democratic Party. I think there's real benefits to running as a Democrat as well, because you're part of a bigger cohort. You sometimes get things done more easily. But also there are times when you're um, asked to or even pressured to vote against things as amendments or even bills that you 
wish uh, would go farther, um, but because you're part of that cohort or because you didn't campaign with that on your sleeve politics, um, you temper your vote relative to what you believe in. And I feel sympathetic for those folks, although sometimes they can also be more effective on a shorter timeline. So there are pros and cons to running under either of those two uh, systems, the traditional within the party, Democratic Party, or outside of it. Um, I have felt quite uninhibited, and sometimes that's gotten me in trouble, uh, both politically and or within the system. And sometimes it's opened doors and made people more excited. So I just kind of want to put that out there for folks that there's uh, pros and cons to both. Yeah. And when, when you were when you entered the house, were you the only progressive in the in the chamber at that time? I, I was not. There were three at the time, actually two progressives and an independent. There had been a third progressive because like you indicated, I was the fourth one. He retired the year that I came in. So um, we had maintained our numbers as three and it had been it then was three or four for a very long time. And we've built it up to five, six, even seven, I believe, at different points this most recent election. Uh, there were a couple of setbacks, so the numbers are a little smaller. Uh, but no, there were three of us, and it was uh, it was a real challenge because at that time there was um, real antipathy towards the progressives. I think over the 25 years of growing the coalition into a party uh, with my election, but also many others ran for lieutenant governor on very strong messages around universal health care, rural economic development, racial social justice issues. Um, it's harder now for there to be outward antipathy towards these voices that have really pushed the envelope of the conversation over the last 25 years. And I think changed the dialogue from being center right to center left in Vermont. So um, there's been an evolution on, on how easy or hard it's been to be uh, part of this smaller third party. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, and I've certainly seen some of that play out re- more, you know, what you mentioned more recently. Um, yeah. In a in a 2010 Seven Days article about your decision to not seek re-election to the Vermont House, you said, quote, I've served now for 14 years and it's time to take a break. I may re-engage in a few years, but for now I'm going to take a step back. The article mentions that you had considered a run for lieutenant governor and Chittenden County Senate. Since that article was published, you did all three of those things. You took a couple breaks, you served in the Senate, and you are now Lieutenant Governor. Are you thinking several years down the road at all times? Are you a planner by nature? Or is it purely coincidental that the plan you verbalized 13 years ago is the plan you've pretty much followed? Well, curiously enough, I tend to be quite a bit more spontaneous. And from an electoral perspective, I don't tend to plan that far ahead. From an issues perspective, I'm often thinking long term because the issues that I bring up are not small. Uh, They're not easy. And they often take uh, significant coalition building and time and effort to uh, elevate to the level where the legislature takes them up. you know, I think at the time I, I was leaving for, for a primary reason as well, which was that we had finally bought this farm where I'm now sitting in my house, which is part of the two silos. We converted our silos into a house. Uh, and in moving to the farm out of Burlington, where we had lived and were renting land in the intervale, I obviously was moving out of the house district that I had been representing. So I, um, I, I probably just put out there that uh, there are various possibilities because Progressives had run for things like lieutenant governor uh, that I did feel I still had, um, hopefully, 
issues and abilities to offer, uh, but was just trying to leave the door open to what might happen without really thinking about how it was going to happen. Um, sometimes life is very much about uh, serendipity and fortuitousness, as well as um, wrong timing. You know, for instance, you know, two and a half years ago, I uh, put myself up for governor. And at that point in January of 2020, uh, a number of folks thought it was going to be a real race that uh, it was uphill. It's always hard to beat an incumbent, but it was winnable. And uh, 10 weeks later, uh, the pandemic hit, the world turned upside down and uh, I got clobbered. So timing is everything, uh, as well as whatever planning and or uh, serendipitous timing happens. And uh, I've been lucky enough that through most of my life, the timing has been good. Occasionally, the timing's not been good. And uh, who knows what the future will bring uh, now that I've experienced that loss two years ago with that uh, very unusual circumstance of a global pandemic. Um, you know, there's no way of knowing what the future holds. That is that is for sure uh, certain. You can't predict a, a global pandemic uh, from just cropping up and ruining your whole campaign, for sure. And sometimes um, it's the dynamic of who's running and uh, what society wants or doesn't want in the moment. You know, what's hot, what's not, is sometimes uh, momentary in our current instantaneous society. Um, but as you know, with looking through that history, and you stated my environmental record, you know, I've worked on some issues for 10, 12, as much as 20 years uh, to get to the finish line. And some things are finished. Uh, and other things are still works in progress. Uh, almost everything is always need tweaking. Um, so who knows? Yeah. And like you said, like in looking back at your votes on some of our scorecards from several bienniums back, it stood out to me that so much of the environment, environmental work that we're doing now is building on bills or acts that were being discussed years and years ago. So is there anything to be said about incremental progress and the pace of change making in our government? Well, there's multiple things to be said. One is that the system is designed to be slow. And that is very frustrating because there are moments in time, like right now with the climate, that I don't think slow is an option. Um, particularly when some of us have been fighting on these issues and pushing for serious energy policy shifts for literally decades. Um, there, not only did Exxon know, and bury information about their knowledge of the impact of fossil fuel use on our climate. Uh, but many of us in the environmental movements knew and have been fighting for more serious change. And the almighty dollar and greed and profitability um, have gotten in the way. I'll give one element of, of credence to the slowness of the pace, which is that, you know, there is real fear amongst everyday citizens that their basic needs uh, will be harder to meet or that change will create strife. And I think that's something that we in the environmental movement, we in the social justice movement or otherwise need to take into account because fear is a powerful tool. And the, uh, I'll say the other side on these issues has exploited fear for a long time. And we have to be able to acknowledge the fear in everyday citizens that is being exploited by greedy powers um, and not just dismiss it, because if we dismiss those fears or don't address them with thoughtful responses, um, both in words and in actions, then the other side will win. Um, 
And to me, that's one of the differences with being a progressive is the willingness to say there are real economic questions for everyday working class people who are living paycheck to paycheck, who fear that progress on fossil fuel uh, switching to renewable energy and different processes is going to really hit them economically. And when you're living on the edge, that fear is very real. And as a progressive, what I would say is we have to look at who has accumulated wealth, who is annually gaining large sums of economic well-being from what has been valued more in our society, and ask, are they willing to contribute more to make sure working class people don't feel the economic pain of climate mitigation? And if we aren't willing to address that side of the equation, I think we are in for trouble because fear will be exploited because the reality is um, very much there for people. And um, sometimes I want to ask folks who have accumulated a lot of wealth or inherited a lot of wealth or annually earning a lot because society values their work more than everyday working class people. And that's an issue of capitalism that I think we also have to address. Um, How much money do they have to take to the grave with them? You know, you want to make sure you leave your children stability and comfort. I think that's understandable. But how much do you have to have? And if you leave them with economic stability and comfort, but a planet that's unstable and is going to lead to strife in other ways, have you really left them better well off? Or should we be investing some of that wealth in this climate transition? That's, I think, the fundamental question of our time. And uh, I'm willing to say I think people can and should put more, those who have it can and should put more on the table for this transition, whether it be energy production and distributed energy like solar and wind um, and sometimes biomass if it's uh, or, or surface carbon with, with wood heat um, and or uh, you know, whether there's other aspects of our transition um, that we need to help people with, weatherization uh, of their homes, purchasing of more fuel efficient and or fully energy cars, preferably again, moving our renewable energy standard up. But these things are going to cost money. And and I think we have to be realistic about that and have a real conversation about it. Yeah. And, and all of these moves, it's, it's not all for nothing. I think, you know, to think about yes. some of the movements that you've taken a lead on, uh, marriage equality, cannabis reform, the GMO labeling, uh, pay equity, renewable energy, as you said, th- these are really big things that, that can't just happen overnight. But I agree. Yeah, there's the pace can sometimes be a bit overwhelming and a lot stoked in fear. We've seen that recently with S5, the Affordable Heat Act. I think that you know, that's a lot, there's a lot of misinformation and, and fear mongering that has certainly been at play. And um, so speaking of S5, um, not that this needs to be your answer, but what are some of the items in the House and Senate that they are currently working on this biennium that you are really exciting to see um, and passionate about making progress on? Well, I, I am passionate about S5. I do think it should move forward. I think a lot of changes were made over the last few years to bring in some of those economic equity issues to make sure the dollars put into transition are uh, significantly focused towards lower income and moderate income households. Um, you know, folks who have the resources to weatherize their home and put the money in up front, that's an investment they can and should make because you save money over time. So if you have the private resources to do so, 
there's there's really no reason economically not to because you save money. There's no doubt the investment saves money, especially with the volatility and the spikes in fossil fuel that I think will continue for quite some time. Um, putting the resources of S5 into helping working class people transition where they don't have the upfront money to get over the hump of weatherization or transitioning their fuel systems for their heating, um, I think is a critical step forward. Um, I understand the delay concern that uh, has been put into the bill. It is frustrating, but it is merely two years. And I think directing the Public Utilities Commission to really develop the processes for implementation um, does take time. And I think people want to see what those results are. I also think it's really important because it's the Public Utilities Commission to think about who your governor is going to be over the next couple of years. Uh, this is one of the reasons I ran for governor was that our current governor, while he is a, a good manager in crisis um, and a stable and respectable leader, um, really doesn't see and forecast. You talked about earlier looking out forward. We're living in climate change now and the forecast is much, much worse. So why we wouldn't be taking proactive steps to do what we can um, is beyond me. And the steps on the governor's side, if we think the current path has been incremental, the, the governor's incrementalism is, is much, much smaller and therefore going to take much, much longer. And around the world, we are seeing countries and across our country, we're seeing states taking much more proactive steps, recognizing that the impact of the climate on our economy, on our communities, on those who least can afford it, um, is actually quite drastic. Uh, and there's other avenues besides energy. I'd like to see us doing a lot more around investing in um, our farmers who can also sequester carbon through cover crops. There's tremendous technologies out there to sequester carbon, but they, they often use a lot of energy to do it. We can literally put seeds in the ground and those plants can consume carbon dioxide from the air and we can put that into our soil to start putting more carbon back into our soil. Uh, you mentioned even GMOs earlier, and as frustrated I am as I am with GMO use, because there are organic methods to do this, uh, a lot of conventional farms are growing cover crops. Unfortunately, they're killing them with, with glyphosate, and they're growing GMO-protected um, corn and other things, but um, they can actually sequester carbon with massive cropping, and they can till their soil less to release less carbon into the air, uh, thus with wide swaths of land, we can tackle climate issues. And then there's a bill that is unfortunately languishing a bit, but I hope that it gets tacked onto some other bills around our renewable energy standards. And particularly not only that we need to echo, need to make efforts towards, you know, someday being 100% renewable energy, but also uh, increasing the amount of renewable energy that is domestic and in our state. Uh, we have an incredible landscape, an incredible, beautiful state. Um, but I do get frustrated when sometimes those who are sometimes better off, sometimes even quite liberal, who support renewable energy, but then don't want it in their backyards. Um, for us to export our renewable energy production or any energy production into other people's communities is another form of economic and often racial um, injustice. And if we want to turn on our lights or plug in our hybrid or fully electric vehicles like that, um, I think we still should live with the consequences of what it takes to do that so that we're more cognizant of 
How often do we turn on our lights? How often do we drive places that we could maybe walk? Obviously, Vermont is not a very walkable state. Um, I hope we develop our town and village centers more. That's also an environmental bill, um, not only to build more housing, but to build it relatively densely in our town and village centers will make those communities more walkable because you'll then eventually have that coffee shop or that local store, which right now we don't have. So part of envisioning an environmental future is really thinking about many aspects of what we do. And yes, it's got to get done incrementally, but the timeline of, of that incrementalism has to be compressed. Uh, I have a 17-year-old daughter. Um, I have friends still having children. And we are seeing our winters change dramatically. We're seeing our sugar eating season change dramatically. What's this world going to be like in 50 years? Will maples be a part of our future? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves if we want to preserve our culture. Uh, we also have to preserve our climate. Here, here. Um, it's been widely known or said rather that the the role of the lieutenant governor is ceremonial. But I want to know if you can walk me through an average week in the life of Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. What what is a like this week? It's Monday morning. You and I are chatting. What's the week look like for you? Well, uh, I actually got up at uh, 5.30 in order to hit the road to go down to a, a legislative town meeting hosted by the Farm Bureau in Shoreham, Vermont. So that was just under an hour away. Uh, got back and scrambled off to feed the pigs before it got too late uh, and then came back in and uh, cleaned up a little bit to set up for this interview. Um, the rest of today being Monday is actually an opportunity for uh, those in office to maybe get some other things done. So I'll be farming for a bit till later in the day. Uh, and then there's an evening um, fundraiser. I can't remember what it was for. It's an issue-based fundraiser uh, that I'm going to be participating in uh, virtually um, to visit with folks who are, who are organizing that. Um, tomorrow we'll be uh, letting out the chickens doing pig chores in the morning and then heading to the state house uh, where the Senate meets at 930 in the morning. Um, I'll preside over the Senate. And then I've usually got meetings throughout the days, most days on either side of the legislative process uh, with the Senate, where I'm the, the moderator of the Senate, the town moderator, essentially, uh, the presiding officer to be technical about it. But I meet with different individuals and organizations around issues, trying to help them um, navigate their way through the political process, trying to help uh, particularly everyday citizens um, elevate their voice to influence, whether it's climate legislation such as we've been talking about, or uh, there's been a big topic around wake boats on our bodies of water and whether those should have certain uh, regulations and what those regulations should be, helping folks elevate their voices on a whole number of different things um, relating to affordable housing. Uh, you know, how do we get the, the bill that's going to build affordable housing to really focus on perpetual, not just build affordable, the bill is focused on building housing. I'd like to see more parameters around affordable housing and perpetually affordable housing, uh, workforce development, childcare. People come in to talk about these different issues. And then sometimes uh, I do evening activities. Um, this coming Thursday evening, I'll be going to Norwich University to talk, uh, to be at um, an award ceremony for I think it's 20 or 25 different teams working on engineering projects um, to uh, think about ideas of our future. Uh, and I'll be a keynote speaker about being a, a small business owner and an entrepreneur, but also how politics work and innovative ideas and how to turn those ideas 
into potentially a, a business of the future. Um, so it runs the gamut uh, from organizing individuals politically to hoping to inspire young people and entrepreneurs, talking to school groups about what they can do if they can't yet vote, but they can use email or their collective voices to try to influence the outcomes and the system. Um, and in some ways, I put on this overall hat of ambassador for democracy that is a self-described, self-created hat. But as lieutenant governor, in this moment of uh, democratic turmoil, um, I think we're very fortunate in Vermont to still have a place where individual voices can matter and do matter, and where we tend to still be able to talk with people that we disagree with and carry on a good productive conversation and maybe even find some common ground to insert into a bill. Um, so it's a bit of, of an ambassador for democracy, an advocate, uh, and a parliamentarian, I guess, for lack of a better description. It honestly sounds pretty great, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> In many ways it is. Uh, you don't have as much direct impact on legislation. And sometimes legislators get frustrated if I over-insert myself into legislative policymaking because that's the legislative process. The, the lieutenant governor is a very curious job because it's part of the administration from a constitutional perspective, but it's also part of the legislature by constitution because I'm presiding over the Senate, which is where the legislature is made, and I cast tie-breaking votes in the rare occasions they happen. Um, and I do insert myself in policymaking through citizen engagement, uh, my newsletter, which people can sign up for by um, emailing ltg.info at uh, vermont.gov. I just want to make sure I have that right. Yes, ltg.info at vermont.gov, which uh, if folks want to sign up for a weekly policy newsletter, how to get involved, how to engage, that's sort of my route for legislative um, input, because if people get inspired by something they read in my newsletter, I've talked about uh, Affordable Heat Act, I've talked about uh, our state colleges in there, I've talked about housing. Um, that's really the way to impact policy. It, it's not as direct as when I was a legislator. Well, as uh, we've established, you're no stranger to either making intentions and planning ahead or just being serendipitous and spontaneous. But I have to ask, um, any future plans for you as you see right now? Well, it's it's really important, I think, at the moment in this during the legislative session to focus on helping push these good policies, uh, climate, housing, um, racial and economic injustice, social injustices. Uh, there's gender issues that we're facing across the country that uh, we need to stand up for and protect our Vermonters. Uh, we recently passed a shield law for um, our medical providers around uh, both reproductive liberty and uh, gender uh, liberty. Um, and so right now my focus is on these kinds of issues. Uh, unfortunately, Vermont uh, does still have a lot of two-year cycles for statewide office and federal office. So unfortunately, one always has to be thinking a little bit towards that future. Uh, and you know, right now I wanna serve people in the, in the way that I can. And it's unknown what the future will hold. Uh, I've obviously run for governor in the past, so I'm not going to obfuscate that that would always be a possibility. Um, Washington hasn't had turnover in a long time. We just had one seat turnover and who knows what will happen in two to four or six years. Um, but uh, so it's really about timing as we spoke of it um, maybe earlier that uh, my race for governor was ill-timed 
Um, but you just never know what the cards will hold. And so I'm going to have to leave it at that. Yeah, totally. Well, it's a pleasure to see you around the state house and to have chatted with you this morning. And I thank you uh, for taking the time to chat with me and being on the podcast today. Well, I appreciate it. And again, folks, not only can sign up for the newsletter, but if you have an issue, whether it's something you want to advocate for or you're having or whoever's watching this is struggling through some aspect of the bureaucracy of governance, um, please feel free to email ltg.info at vermont.gov. Uh, to reach out to the office. One of the things we also do is help constituents navigate DMV issues, uh, human services issues, criminal justice issues, um, you name it. Uh, part of our job, along with your legislator's job, is to help you navigate uh, these policies and procedures um, to make sure government serves you well. So reach out if anybody uh, out there wants to. I appreciate it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Get back to the farm. I will. And uh, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye, Justin. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. 8.2. That is the average of how many days earlier the sugaring season begins now versus 40 years ago in Vermont. And maple trees stopped producing usable sap 11.4 days earlier than they did 40 years ago a trend coinciding with regional climate changes recorded over the same time period. To put this into perspective, this translates to an approximate 10% of loss in the length of the sugaring season since my father, who is a maple sugar producer himself, graduated high school. Additionally, a new study shows that by the year 2100, maple sugaring may begin one month earlier than it did between the years of 1950 and 2017. To arrive at these findings, researchers examined sugar maple stands spanning from Virginia to Quebec over a six-year period. Using historical climate data, the researchers examined how past changes in minimum and maximum temperatures affected sap flow and created a model based upon their field data predicting timing for optimal sap flow. Their conservative models predict that by 2100, Virginia and Indiana will barely be able to produce any sap, whereas production in Quebec will grow significantly. By the end of the century, most of the areas containing sugar maples in the U.S. are projected to see decreases in maple production, while areas in northern Ontario and Quebec may see moderate to large increases. This week's climate stat comes to us from an excellent 2021 article published by Audubon Vermont by Alexander Cotenoir entitled The End of Maple, Maple Sugaring Amid a Changing Climate. You can visit vt.audubon.org to read the full article, check out the amazing links, and see even more data. I want to thank our guest, Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, as well as Lauren Hurl for assisting me. Next week, we will return for another enthralling episode, this time with our state treasurer, Mike Pichak. Until next time, thanks for listening.